What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. 10,000 No's is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Maddie Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. And I thought, oh my God, how could I be here? These are rich people, and what, oh my God, they're going to know. Welcome to episode 15. I got a chance to sit down with Dr. Angelica Hernandez. She has her PhD in education, and she was the victim of sexual assault as a child, And that has become her central cause to educate parents about how to be more aware of sexual predators and more in tune with their kids in terms of sensing changes in their demeanor that may be a result of sexual trauma. It's not easy to hear what Angelica went through, but it is a reality and it's something that's rampant in our society, particularly with everything that's swirling around the news these days. Hearing how she fought through it and turned her trauma into her cause is inspiring. I hope you agree. So, welcome. I am here with Angelica Hernandez, Dr. Angelica Hernandez. I love the sound of that. PhD. You know, I don't feel like I really even knew that about you until starting to research this. Yes. Um, You, I I don't know where to begin with you because we have, um, there are are many aspects to you. And uh, can you tell everybody what you do? Uh, in terms of, I mean, I think of you as I don't even have, photography, yeah. you have a blog, you have Two Moms, Two Kids, TV.com, mm-hmm. is it? It's Two Moms, Two Kids, dot com. Dot com. Uh, and what do you address uh, in, in that? You, you seem to cover a wide variety of topics. Uh, well, the, the intention of Two Moms, Two Kids is, first of all, the, the name comes from being a lesbian uh, and being married and having two children. So I figured that that, you know had a ring to it. Um, what I try to cover is pretty much anything that affects children, uh, whether that's uh, medical stuff, whether it's psychological stuff, whether that's environmental stuff, you know, um, things that children endure or are faced with. Those are things that um, I'm interested in, but mostly I'm interested in keeping children empowered about their bodies and being safe. Uh, I'm also a survivor of sexual trauma. So that kind of has been my kind of drive in life is to how to protect or teach children how to protect themselves. And trust me, like it is different today uh, than it was in the 70s when I was born uh, and when I endured my life trauma. But now I feel like there's a revolution (laughs) seriously happening, especially with Harvey Weinstein, what's happened there. I feel like we all have a power that we didn't have before. Like, I mean, I was a child, like, you know, three, four years old when I first started being molested by my brother. I was raped at age five by my brother and then multiple perpetrators from there based on the fact that my mother, she was so disconnected and she just wasn't attuned. So she didn't know where I was. I was outside somewhere. And being accessible to predators uh, is is the best case scenario for them. Worst case scenario for children. Can I just uh, interrupt you there to say, you know, I knew this was your history. I didn't know specifically that it was your brother. I mean, Mm. you know, you obviously have been dealing this with with this for so some time and can say a sentence like that yeah in the middle of a conversation to hear mm-hmm. that is so mind-blowing to me mm-hmm. your brother 
How much older? Uh, he was eight, he's he is eight years older than me. So <sighs> when he started molesting me, and it's funny because my my mother always said, "No, he is he is too young. He don't know what he is doing." She protected him throughout <laughs> my life or throughout her life, and <sighs> I remember him, you know, having body hair, uh, you know. So he was a teenager uh, when he when he raped me. Um, when he was molesting me, uh, I don't remember his body, but when I was raped, I remember his body. Oh my god! Um, and it, it is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a visceral thing. And I'll tell you—you you know, ten years ago, fifteen, twenty years ago, I couldn't even say his name without feeling the need to vomit or run to the bathroom. I mean, I feel right now hearing it—it's bizarre to have you saying this face to face, just saying it so plainly because we've known each other for a while and uh, through our kids. And, um, you know, it's it's a fact that I know about you based because you've told me, but mm-hmm. not to hear it, it it's, it's so disturbing mm-hmm. to me um, that this... Uh, that this goes on and and how prevalent is it? I mean, how prevalent is it with siblings? Well, well, incest, I mean, most people who are molested know the person. So it's either mostly it's like the stepfather or the or the uncle, but it's always a relative or someone close to the family. So the statistics I think are don't quote me right now, but it's like one in eight girls will be molested by the time they're 18. And the the tragedy in that is that we educate children to stay away from strangers and don't you know but in fact we should be mindful and as parents that's where our responsibility lies is really being mindful and attuned to your kid so you know when they're distressed because you know it's like my kids literally if they have a hangnail they'll be running screaming bloody murder to show me the dot of blood right when i was a kid i didn't i fell down and got back up i was raped and i walked back up the stairs and sucked up my tears. And like, there was no room for me to, uh, I guess need, oh, there's a fly in here. Oh, that's that's going to drive me crazy. James, my sound guy will take yeah. care of take that. Care Trust of me, he'll take care of yeah, take care traffic. Of the Thank you, James. Traffic. He'll take care of this whole fly. Thank you, James. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the idea that, um, what was I saying? Uh, of going, oh, just, just, go yeah. But just, t- and... just talking about like, there was no freedom to complain, I guess. Mm-hmm. And part of that was I had a mother who, um, you know, later in, in life she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but all my life she was mentally ill. So she just missed that attunement. You know how you just know something's up with your kid and, you know, just by their body language, you can say, okay, what's going on there, Matthias? You look a little bummed. Or you can kind of just tell when your kid's not right. Yeah. And uh, she didn't have that because literally... She was dealing with her own... Or not. She's in her own world, in her own focus, praying to God for us to have a better life, you know? And it's funny because we talk about being in action and, you know, I'm working uh, on myself to build my career and to really work through... Talk about the no's. It's not just the 10,000 no's because they're not all verbal no's. You, you, You can feel squelched and critiqued and judged and diminished by a look by body language. So there's, you know, let's, let's, it's ex- exponential. Oh yeah. No, that the title 10,000 knows is definitely a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's also semi <laughs> reality of no, you didn't get this job, but, but really it's a metaphor for any kind of adversity you've had to overcome any obstacles you've been faced with in your life and your work. And, and yeah, absolutely. A lot of it is unsaid. Yeah. A lot, especially with Kids, just think about kids on the playground or think about, you know, a look from a parent. Yeah, yeah that, that, that stuff can be squelching. And just so um, I already knew that I couldn't go to my mother because she was in her own distress. You know, we, uh, I lived in extreme poverty. Uh, my mother uh, received welfare. I'm one of five children. Where was that? We lived first. I was born in East L.A. And then uh, there were social services involved. 
two of my brothers were put in foster care. One of the, the perpetrator, but which was like a relief until he came back because then he was pissed. Was he? Uh, was he ever he was, put in jail? No. Well, in his adult life, yes. But was he ever not due to no, your, no, no. your dealing? Which is interesting because, of course, now that we have access to information on, online, I've checked the you know sexual registry. He's never been on that. I've accessed information about him, and all of his charges have been violence or intoxication in public, or resisting an officer. And not only was he sexually uh, abusive, but he was cruel physically. And I'll speak for myself. I have, you know, two brothers that also felt his wrath. But um, he uh, he would lose his temper so quickly that you couldn't anticipate it. It was, it was, uh, you know, one of those things where, uh, an example, uh, I was outside playing uh, football with him at a park, and this girl walked by. And I knew the girl because she was an older sibling of my friend. And, of course, he was interested in her within those seconds, right? He saw her. She's pretty. And I introduced them. And then we just kept playing football. And as she walked away, he got angry at me for making him sweat. Because he made a bad impression on this girl. And so for the walk home, he just berated me. Why the fuck did you do that? Why, you know? And I, and of course, you're like oh speechless. How, how, how do you? How old were you? I was about nine years old at that time. And he nine was say seventeen. Yeah, seventeen. And, and he, had this yeah. been going on already? Oh this? yeah. I mean, that was just like the verbal kind of, you know. I'm saying, distress. had the had the sexual stuff been going? No, on you know already? what? It, it stopped. Yeah, it had already happened. I it started when I was about two years old, and it started oh. with molesting, where he would. And this is where I don't know where my mother was, but he'd give me oh baths. And I never have a memory. Like, I give my kids baths when they're little kids, and I'm always in there. You know, you're like, ah, playing with the soap, playing with... So I have no image of my mother being in the bathroom with me. I just have images of him and him being naked. And he wasn't in the bathtub with me, but he'd give me a bath, which oh. meant he was fondling me. And, uh, and the rape took place when I was five years old. And then it stopped. It never happened again. But at that point, being five years old, I mean, my children are, you know, 10 and 8. Um, I, he literally raped me uh, in, we lived in a basement in Chicago. We were separated only by a very, very thin curtain. And I had uh, two other brothers on the other side. And he was so aggressive that if he said something, like it was <sighs> Iron Fist. So he says... Uh, you guys stay back here. I'm going to, I'm going to teach, I'm going to teach Angelica something and, and just don't come back here. And we were, um, we had a game of, of checkers or something and he was going to show me, you know, like some tactics, some strategy. And what he ended up doing is, uh, um, you know, he said, I'm going to teach you what girls need to know how to do. And, oh my God. Uh, and I just remember that. And I remember thinking, of course, cause that talk about being ingrained with a with a making the association between girls and and violation, I truly, Matt, believe that this is what happened to girls. Did not think twice about it. So the next time a cousin asked me to do something, of course I was scared. Of course I felt sick. Of course your body is retaliating. But I just felt obligated, and I think that's the worst feeling in the world is to feel obligated to do something that goes against every single thing in your body. And I didn't know what sex was. I didn't know, like, we never had the conversation. I mean, literally, my mother, this is, we would go see movies like Death Wish, you know, Charles Bronson, yeah. like, fucking killing yeah. people, slicing necks. and But if there was a scene of someone kissing, she'd cover our eyes. And, and in retrospect, I think, gosh, the violence, just the amount of violence that I witnessed and we know today, psychologically, what violence does to a, a child is it really reprograms their their brain. So pairing that with the real violence and threat of abuse and molestation, right. it was. I was just sick. I was a sick kid. I had to run to the bathroom every you know every five minutes. I I had irritable bowel uh, disease. It wasn't called that then, but my body was at such a a ramped up rate that I could not sit still. Like I was always on guard. And that went, you know, until I was a teenager, until I felt like somehow uh, I could protect myself. And I truly had to deal with each situation without my mother knowing. 
without, you know. Um, was your father around? No father. I, I was, I, I never knew my father. Uh, you know, I'm a redhead white Mexican. I thought I was Mexican all my life. I fought tooth and nail to prove my identity. Yeah. And of course, I have red hair and I'm white. <laughs> but anyway, um, I didn't find out until I was 14. One of my brothers told me, hey, by the way, you don't have the same father. And I was like, what? And then it made sense, you know. But my mother always told me that my father was in Mexico and he, he didn't like the uh, the United States and the kind of traditional or, or, or the, the progression of, of, you know, free-for-all in the United States and he wanted tradition and so it was a crock of shit. But I believed it, you know. And yeah. then uh, I sought out to find this man. Uh, from 14, 1984, I literally you know, wrote to Oprah Winfrey. I uh, went to the library. I knew the man's name. It was Ralph Baggett uh, because I had mom, my mom had a little scratch of paper that said his name on it. And I went through, this is the old days, right? Before computers. I was like through the white pages looking for this man yeah. hours at 14, you know, between running back and forth to the bathroom because I was so anxious and excited and nervous and just sick about it all that I just was like trash. My body was just trash. Yeah. And that's all cortisol and all just trauma, you know? Did that, did this in any way, I know uh, you're an athlete. Um, when did your kind of your sports career start? I feel like you're pretty yeah. into sports. Well, so was it's interesting. It, would, you, would you see that as a bit of a reaction to uh, some of what happened to you earlier on to kind of strengthen yourself or mm -hmm. was there any of that you think behind that? Well, I think at a young age, I, like I said, um, I thought that's what happens to girls. So from a very young age, based on, you know, not only that I had four brothers and that I was a tomboy already and that I wore hand-me-downs, but I actually liked looking like a boy. It, it made me feel safer. But again, that's the mind of a seven-year-old kid. Mm. The, the, the reality was that I wasn't safer. But in my mind, if I look like a boy, then I'm good. I'm golden because they're not going to, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and that definitely wasn't a protection at all because I was continually uh, um, abused. But by other people. And uh, what people don't understand and what people have a hard time with is understanding that there can be multiple perpetrators in a child's life, that it's not just one person that, you know, has access to them for 15 years or 10 years or one year or whatever. But because, um, what was that movie? Mystic, Mystic River. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's this one scene that literally was like a visceral feeling for me. And it's when the two guys pull up when the kids are playing out in the yard, they're on the street. There's one kid who's like, ah, loud mouth, just like, well, like I knew that he wasn't going to be the one that the, these guys take because he's loud and he would make a fit. He'd throw yeah. a fit. Yeah. But there's that the one kid who just is like, just kind of cowers and was so vulnerable and so helpless. It's like, I want that one. And yeah. truthfully, predators know who to go after. Now, is it because in this case I was trained by the perpetrators to respond to them because it wasn't like, Hey, follow me, come to the bathroom with me. It wasn't like that, but it was like a look. And then I just, again, that obligation, I knew I had to get up and go follow them. And, and, and you wouldn't know that unless you knew that, you know what I mean? Like I yeah. can't, I can't say, well, how, how did you, it just, it was like some, you were so you to their almost distress. had after it happened the f once it happens the oh, first yeah. time you think you it's more likely to happen absolutely again from different and, people. But here's the thing: unless there's some intervention where someone says, "Hey, this is gosh, don't ever," you know, do I had nothing. All I had was one person. Two years later, another person. You know, my mother's friend. This guy. I mean, there was at one point there were simultaneously two men. Uh, one we lived above a, a shoe store in Chicago. He was uh, molesting me, and then his friend, who lived had had another business down the street, he was molesting me. And I don't think, to tell you the truth, that the two men knew that they were both molesting me at the same time. I really don't, Ugh. because who shares that? I mean, now that we have child pornography on the uh, uh, online, people share things. But I don't know that in the in, in the community of that. real yeah. pedophiles, do they communicate to each other? I, I really don't believe so. So. Um, but it was my mom's friend. And in, in this case, the shoe store guy, we got discounted rent. And, and I felt like I had to do whatever he said because 
We, he yeah. takes us out to dinner. He's nice to my mom. Well, He's- what could you, I mean, it's, it's so sick on so many levels, but what could you kind of, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of your mission mm-hmm. and your two moms, two kids. What do you kind of advise? I would imagine it's parents, yes, uh, because they're the ones that are the gatekeepers for mm-hmm. their children. But w- what is it that you say, um, knowing from your experience, to be on the lookout for? Okay, um, all right, that's a great. I mean, that's a great point. First of all, you don't want to be in distress and thinking everyone's a predator because that's not true. Right. Okay. But first, I think that it's important that you and your wife and your family, you, the two of you, look at your own lives and look at the messages you've received about your body and how you were taught and when you felt safe and when you didn't feel safe. And just be mindful that that you may have experienced a situation. We can look at the Harvey uh, Weinstein thing where someone felt uncomfortable but they felt like they had no voice, right? And that happens to men. And I'll say that in Hollywood, it happens to men and it happens to women and it happens to men by women. So this is not, Mm. predators are predators. There's no gender differential. The violence and rape is is overrepresented by men, but the seduction and manipulation happens with women Both to genders. men. Yeah. So, so, so let's get that I, on the table. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, when you're talking about the, the rent, he's giving you a discount on the rent and you felt like this is what Obligation. you needed to do. I think, uh, you know, cause you can look on both sides of the aisle and I, I actually don't want to get into a political conversation about it, but look on both sides of the aisle. You know, you got Harvey Weinstein far yeah, left, you got, you got Trump, but there's the whole thing yeah. with the Billy Bush, you know, it, it's power. Yeah. I think it's when people feel they have, uh, whether it's the perpetrator feeling they have power over the mm-hmm, victim or the mm-hmm. victim feeling they are powerless. Exactly. In front of this. It's, it's a structure of it's power. A, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's really, um, and it's been going on through history yeah. in, in all kinds of ways. Which is but. interesting because I was, I don't know that this point has been made, but sex addicts, and I know this uh, because I have studied this, sex addicts, um, feel powerless. I mean, and so they exert their power sexually, right? Yeah. So so for whatever reason, they're trying to resolve this feeling of powerlessness, whether it was in their childhood or at some point. So the irony is that this powerful man, even Trump, whoever, these powerful people have to do something like this to feel powerful. Mm-hmm. When we just see, no, 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 you're powerful already. You've got, you're, you're there. But but they themselves, by their actions, reinforce their own internal powerlessness, which is such a contradiction, but it's yeah. so... There's a, there's a great book about that. Uh, it's called Mind Hunters. I think they've made it into a film. Actually, and I know it was, the, it was the basis of the agent Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs, but it's this guy, John Douglas, who started yeah. the serial profiling yes. department at the FBI and he goes through um, serial killers yeah. and he gets behind their MO and that's one of the things he says it's Powerless. all it's all about yeah. power. So that's, so that's even the, yeah the, exactly and you look at child molesters too and 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 people who engage in child pornography and that 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 are aroused by that they are disturbed people. They're not just regular people like, hey, yeah, you know, they are disturbed in a way that needs extreme treatment. And of course, the pedophile themselves is disturbed because they're actually acting out on a physical person. But even child pornography, they're acting out on all those images. Those are real kids behind that. So, 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 so another level of psychological being fucked up, brothers and sisters, needs to be looked at, you know, Weinstein, oh, he's going to go in recovery. Like this is, he's got to do some fucking work, Mm. you know, because the collateral damage of being around a person like that. And then, you know, exponentially because of the power that he had and, and how he, uh, you know, had his own kingdom pretty much and everyone that suffered under him. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, I think about what my brother did to me. It has affected every aspect of my life. It's a, it's affected what I pursued as a as a as a um, career. It's affected my relationships. It has affected my parenting. It is affecting my friendships. It has affected my personality. There are certain things that I just do not tolerate. There are certain things that just aren't funny to me. 
You know, yeah. it's just like being Mexican. It's not funny, you know, to make racist jokes. Yeah, maybe for you, someone else it is, but that doesn't work with me. Yeah. And, and, and I've learned to advocate for myself in a way that I didn't know how to do then. Yeah. Right? I, I was silent. Oh, let me ask you that. Sorry, this is, well, one, it's incredible that you've, you've done that. You've taken this uh, abuse, basically, and turned it into something that is now your calling yeah, and yeah. is now helping others. So I salute you for that. Thank you. And, and um, you're welcome. And, and the other thing was, uh, I thought of this before, when you were talking about your kids and having them feel, and you were taught to kind of suck it up. Um, this is an interesting uh, dynamic that I think about in this day and age now mm-hmm. with kids myself and thinking back to how I was raised and has the pendulum swung too far the other way where kids are now given coddled, coddled, yeah, given too much power, power, absolutely, to, to do, absolutely, because, because that's something yeah. I worry about too, absolutely. you know. And, but it's this fine line of like, I, you know, I don't want to. Uh, beat my kids down to thinking like they can't have the mind of their own because mm-hmm. that's what you're trying to you're trying to give you want to build you're them. trying to build independent little beings who will stand up for themselves. Yeah. On the other hand, there's also the dynamic of I'm the parent, they're the child, yeah. and well, it's like that Cat Stevens song I, I always loved when he says, uh, "You you taught me to talk. You're like as soon as I can talk, you told me to shut up." Oh yeah, and from I think the moment I could talk, talk, I was ordered to listen. Yeah, me. and it was yeah. just that yeah. idea. It was like, yeah. And what I think is, like, you know, they talk, call helicopter parents, where yeah. they're like monitoring everything, and that that does not benefit a child. It it, it really uh, cripples them. Yeah. But also the lawnmower child, uh, lawnmower parent is a new one, where they just obliterate any any obstacle that can be in their child's way. Right. Right. You can't do that. It's not realistic. Yeah. Your children need to learn resilience. So you know what that means? That means if they didn't turn in their homework, they're going to suffer the consequence. There's a bu- another- We are not. Yeah, those are natural consequences because you know what? If I show up to class and I'm supposed to do a presentation, I need to f- feel the disappointment and the, the consequence of that. I can't just be like, ah, oh, yeah, well, I'll do it next week. Have you read the book? Another no, mother haven't. told... Uh- Deirdre and I about the uh, this book, The Gift of Failure, yeah. and it's all about that. Yeah, and and you know. you know your kid doesn't want to do their homework. You go, okay, all right, and let, you let them, them go it. in, let exactly. them fail, let them feel it, let, exactly. Let them, uh, which is really what I've found with every guest here is that all of the the biggest failures and the biggest setbacks have been the biggest learning lessons. And why yeah. wouldn't that apply yeah. to, to our children. kids? But it's hard to. I think what it is, is it's hard them. for us to watch them yeah, suffer. fall and or hurt cry. themselves. Exactly. And, but they need to yeah. in order to, to And you you can you can be with them. It's like um, you know, when a kid is throwing a tantrum, you know, you, you could you could be there and, and just be there with them. You don't have to fix it. I think that we're we're inclined to want to fix things. And and that's I mean, that's been a dynamic, and I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but that has been a dynamic between men and women in relationships where the man just wants to take care of shit. And the woman just wants you to listen to what they have to say. And 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 the guy already has I a solution. I have no idea what she's talking yeah. about. Yeah, all right. I'll talk to your wife later. <laughs> anyway, but just that idea. And, and what ends up happening is we're so quick to want to fix something instead of just mirroring what our kids are saying. Like if they didn't catch the ball in football, you know, I'm a football coach and I coach my kids in sports. Um they're not going to get the ball every time. So I have to remind my kids, listen, there are, you know, seven other players here that they want to feel that feeling of crossing that touchdown line just like you do. And maybe they can't catch it. So we're going to do it differently. We're going to do a handoff, but we're going to let them feel what that feels like because everyone should know. And guess what? If they drop it, we're not going to penalize them. I don't want to hear any negative or anything. We say, shake it off. Let's do it again, guys. And let's do it again. Because that's how we grow. And, and we don't, there's no room for judgment and crushing. And th- there's enough of that outside of the household. Yeah. Why, why should we be the ones who teach our children the lesser, lesson of what it feels like to be crushed and, and squelched in your ideas? Right, right. They're going to get on. plenty of it out yeah. there. And yeah. And if we can just let them know that that exists. And, you know, I want my kids to challenge me. You know, my son said to me the other day, <clears throat> he was so upset. Um, he wanted to, it was bedtime. He wanted to throw the, he's obsessed with football, right? He wanted to throw the football in the house and I always throw it with him. 
And then I, when I went to the restroom, I noticed that he hadn't put his clothes away. So we always say, hey, before iPad, after dinner, like you have to put, do your chores, put that away, do the dishes, do this. And while I went to the bathroom, I said, Matias, you didn't put your clothes away. So while I was in the bathroom, they were all put away. So he's like, okay, ready? And I said, sorry, bud. So, but I put them away. I said, that's not the point. I had asked you to take care of that before. And sorry, huge meltdown fit the whole house. And it was like, everyone's against me. Like everyone's like, come on, I put it away. And I'm like, sorry. And literally I was like, they almost kicked me out of the house. Like they were so angry yeah, at me. Yeah. And I sat down where I always sit down while he, you know, he's going to sleep. Um, and I just sat there and he was crying and mad and just, and then things calmed down. I didn't say anything still. I'm holding my point. We're not playing. And then he says, I'm sorry for acting, what, what, for, for overreacting, Mom. And I said to him, I said, you know what, Matthias? That is your job. Your job is to push and push and try to make your point. And my responsibility is to hold the line as a parent. And he's all, are you, are you sure? Because he felt horrible, right? Because he felt horrible because afterwards right. he was like, okay, God, I really didn't do what I was supposed to do. The next day he asks me, Mom, remember what you said about what kids are, what their job is? Is that really true? I said, yes, it's really true. And I believe that. I believe I want him to fight for what he believes in. He's going to be wrong sometimes. But let him feel, let him let him exhaust himself and, and see what's worth it, what's not. You know, yeah. like we have to fight our own battles, right? Now, do you just sound that great as a parent for the podcast? Or are you Hell always no. That great? Dude, I, I have because done that's work. that's really good. No. I mean, that's Dude, really I good because work. I feel like I've, you know, I have my moments where I'm like, oh, that was a good, that was a good dad move. But um, I think too often I'm doing, you know, that's me when I'm in a really, you know, Zen perfect place, state. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are many times when I know that, but you don't in the heat it. of the moment, yeah. I'm like, Hey man, this is what you got to do. This, you know, and end it's, of story. And it's, yeah, and it's and it doesn't feel um, like a good parenting. Moment. Doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel right. Um, but you know, I'm certainly but here's guilty the point. of doing it. What we need to do, just like you do it with your wife or you do it with anyone else, you get to you get to act out. You get to not you know be perfect. But here's the thing: it takes reflection and it takes courage to be reflective, to look at what you did, and to come back and say, oh, guess what, D? That came out horribly wrong. Yeah. I'm sorry, bud. Yeah. I, you know what? Which I've done that. Yeah. yeah. But you know um, what? I don't think I've ever heard my mother say, I'm sorry. I, I'm, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. never. Like, that didn't come out of her. And a lot of parents, they would refuse to surrender that. And I say, you know what? I say sorry, I, I, you know, because it gives me an opportunity to do it differently next time. Yeah. Well, what's interesting when you said about Matthias's response to you, that it was kind of a delayed response, and I found that with both my kids, is that when they're in that heightened state and you hold the line, they do tend to come around and be particularly mindful, grateful and almost want more hugs than normal when you hold the line. It's mm. almost like, and, and I've heard that, that they're they're testing they're testing us as well yes. though to see how how well we hold the line. Yeah, and you know are because we it's gonna, safety because yeah. they want to be they want to know what the hell you're gonna do. And if you are wavering and if you're not clear, they sense that. Yeah. I mean, and it's a bigger thing. It's not just that incident. Right. It's like where you know. My boundaries. kids need to know that what my boundary is very clear. There's no confusion. I'm yeah. not confused. I'll let you know I'm not confused. And and I think that that creates a safety. Absolutely. Mm. Um, but again, I think that we need to be mindful and, and think about how, you know, we have to think about how we were parented. You know, I did a lot of research and, and I didn't want to be my mother. I didn't want to be misattuned, neglectful. I didn't want to live in poverty. Like I consciously was like, what the hell do I need to do to not get welfare? What do I need to do to not eat from mm. food stamps? Like, I don't want this life. This is painful. And I just said, my mother used to say, education is, for, is, is, is the best thing. And I was like, okay, boom. And I just excelled in, in school. Yeah. Now, What's was your it, PhD, by the way? It's an education. It's in education. It's ed education. It looked at race uh, and, um, look, I can't even think of it. Um, I did a 
master's degree in developmental psychology at UCLA at UCLA because okay. they need you they didn't they didn't accept my my master's degree from Whittier College which was in education so they want you to start all over so I started all over and did developmental psychology degree and then an education degree and what I looked at you know because I had you know opportunities to look at child abuse and look at uh situations where uh, who has power and access of power and race and racism and institutionalized racism. And, you know, what, what, what really got me was sitting in a class, in a psychology class, and here's the thing, right? Because you don't go in, hey, how you doing? And Hal Hernandez, rape survivor, six, you know, whatever. You just don't give that stuff right. up, you know, right. because it's like you're protective, you know, and, and if we have an intimate moment and I trust you, then I might share that with you. But that's not how I introduce myself. So we were, I was in a class and they, were, they kept talking about how, you know, they're talking about, you know, low income, you know, minorities, people of color, um, and the rates of, you know, violence and, 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 and poverty and crime and how, you know, the trajectory is really a pipeline for many to prison. It's a pipeline to prison. And I was sitting there and I kept thinking, they're talking about me. Like I was, I lived in Logan Square, Chicago, okay, which was gang-ridden Puerto Ricans versus the Polish, the white folks, the Latin kings, Latin hoods. And I lived in such terror, but I still went to school. Now I got in trouble at school because, you know, I was chatty or I was this, or I had to go to the bathroom. And of course I was penalized for that. So there was like this, 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 this tension that I existed in, but I knew sitting in UCLA, Hell, I made it. Yeah. They're talking about me. They're talking about poor, I'm Mexican. They're talking about, you know, living in poverty and mental health issues and violence. And I've seen it all. I've done it all. And I thought, but that's not everyone's story. And that's when I started to learn about a counter story, right? So here are the statistics that say, listen, if you're poor, if you're Mexican or black, uh, you're probably going to end up pregnant. Uh, about 16, 17 years old, you're definitely not going to graduate high school. You're going to get a job at Burger King or McDonald's or something. And and then you're going to have babies. And then those babies, it's like what they call the poverty of cycle, cycle of poverty, which of course I don't buy into. I don't buy into the poverty cycle because I believe that it's about access to information, access to medicine. Access, and these environments are deprived of that intentionally or unintentionally because there's not a... Abercrombie and Fitch for someone to get a job at in, you know, South Central, or else right. they'd be fucking at Abercrombie and Fitch, trying on those clothes too, and getting that job. But if people aren't investing in that community, then, right, where's the opportunity? Right. So anyway, so so while I was in these classes, and here I am at, at, at UCLA, and of course it's beautiful, like beautiful rolling hills and these amazing brick buildings, and I was like, you know what, I need to tell my story, you know, this goes against everything. They're talking about me, but I'm here. But you also are kind of in disguise because you're, you know, white. freckled and redhead and mm -hmm. pale skin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, nobody, I'm sure there were people sitting in class with you who have no, no idea, idea that that's yeah. your story. And the meanwhile, I feel like, I felt like, I don't feel this way anymore, that my uh, trauma was like oozing out of me. That my poverty, you can smell it. That you can but they just, had no idea. That was in yeah, your That's my perception, you know, your right? Perception, yeah. I remember getting a I got a job at Crossroads, which is a, a very um what do they call it? a, a school progressive a very progressive school, yeah. alternative school, but like what do they call it? Like elite, the Brentwood uh, elite schools. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I got there and I remember it was a Sunday. I just faxed my resume over and then I got a phone call like 30 minutes later and I was like, oh, oh my God, I love this attention, right? Yeah. And then the the woman, her name is Joni Martin. She said, oh, you know, can you come in for an interview? And I was like, absolutely, the next day. And so I come in for this interview and it's this beautiful campus. Like the, it, it's just pristine. Now I've taught in East LA, I was trained in Chicago where there's fucking graffiti, where there's guards. Like I remember going to my first day of, of like teacher training where I was sitting in a classroom and I had a backpack on and it's winter and this guard just grabs me by the back of the jacket and just rips me. He says, where do you think you're going? And I'm all, student teacher. And he's <laughs> like, oh, sorry. But he just thought I was like some, but I was like, what? I mean, just the aggression just to yeah. get past the gates into the school. Yeah. It was just like, that was, so I get to Crossroads and it's like, oh, 
oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And like birds are singing. And, uh, and I thought, oh my God, how could I be here? These are rich people. And what, oh my God, they're going to know. Like, they're just going to know. They're going to look at me like, ah, you know, and that was my huge, that was my huge fear. And so, uh, I get there, I meet other teachers because, you know, it's like an introduction. Oh, Angelica, she's, you know, going to be here. And I heard, which still is kind of a slight, by the way, but I heard, oh, Angelica, she is from East of Money. But what she said was, she's from East of Bundy, which technically is the same fucking thing, <laughs> boys and girls. That was like a grenade, like it's it's delayed response. Well, I didn't know East of Bundy meant what the hell that meant. I didn't even know where Bundy was, you know? Yeah. I didn't live here. Right, you know? and you just heard East yeah, of Money. Yeah, and I heard in my mind East of Money, and I thought to myself, but the thing was, I said it out loud. I said, did you just say East of Money? And then everybody laughed. Yeah. And I was like, and she said, no, of Bundy, which also kind of meant the same thing. Yeah. But it didn't hit me, you know, that yeah. way. Um, but anyway, and I, I just really was, a, was sure that everyone was going to know. Huh. Um, but that was my perception. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. We carry our story around, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about this lately. Y- we all have these, these stories, whatever they are, some, some are good, some are bad that are in our head. A lot of them are yeah. limiting. And that's the problem. Yeah. So, so that's a question for you, which is how do you think, you know, you did kind of break out. Was there one person, um, in your childhood that you can think of, or maybe there was more than one, but I find that there's usually at least one mm-hmm. who was a mentor or a guide or a, a kind of a, a, a through a life raft sure. to you and took you <clears throat> out. What, what, how did you get out? Well, you know, it's, a, it's really interesting. I think that the, during periods of my life, there are certain things that, that change direction for me. And as, as simple as this may sound, and I would love to talk to anyone uh, who, 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 I guess it was less, I forget the name, but um, the Brady Bunch. If you can believe it or not, the Brady Bunch in the 1970s was my saving grace because they were a connected family. They had stability. They had this sweet, sweet woman, Alice, who loved the kids. And they were safe and free to be themselves. And I wanted that so badly. I wanted to have dinner at a table with my family. We ate. We didn't have a table. We sat in front of the television. We didn't have a bookshelf. There were no books on. We moved from apartment getting evicted to another apartment with no electricity to another apartment because we couldn't pay the second month's rent. And so there was so much transience life that all I wanted was to sit down at, ta- at a table and please pass the pork chops. I mean, seriously. That's amazing. That drove me to have that life. That really is making, that's kind of blowing me away because I'm in the entertainment field and I think of all the times I've, first of all, the the fact that a a show like The Brady Bunch, which I also watched when I was a kid, um, I mean, I don't know if I saw every episode, but I definitely, you know, mm-hmm. I watched my fair share of the Brady Bunch. Um, to think that it had that kind of effect on you and to think that a TV show could have that Absolutely. kind of effect on you. And and I think of now, you, you know, having done this, for, been in this industry for a while, um, sometimes my cynical view mm. of, I mean, just last night, the kids wanted to watch uh, we watched like a couple of minutes of um, the Descendants too, yeah. and um, and the kids love it right now. Yeah. And I watch it, and I couldn't. I was like, You're "Oh cringing. my god, I can't." I'm, yeah, I'm cringing. And I kind of said something to Deirdre, and she kind of gave me a look, like, like "Don't, don't, don't let blow their life, don't blow their little yeah, happiness." Yeah. yeah, and it's you know, it's a really, it's a great lesson for me to to go. You know, sometimes those shows that are you know, maybe corny. they're maybe they're on the nose. And I listen. I'm a big fan of corny. I, yeah, I mean, okay. I've, I've had my fair share of corny. I, I love it, and I could take it. But but there, if there's something in it, and the kids are getting something out of it, I don't know. There's just something where I'm now. I feel like I gravitate toward more edgy mm-hmm. shows, and mm-hmm, thinking, mm-hmm. oh, that that a show that's kind of 
got this wholesome quality could literally save. I mean, the fact that you're, yeah. you're saying the Brady Bunch is yeah. what brought you out of. Yeah. And I've, you, you know, know what? I, I, I've I mean, talked really, about it. Crazy. I swear. That's... I swear to God. And, and and the thing about it, and I think about it, I, I've been writing about this recently. I was like, I need to meet someone who did this. I need to talk to this person because I need to say that what you provided was an example of what your life could look like because my life didn't look like that. I literally sat in front of the television, you know, Who are eating. the creators of the Brady Bunch? Wait, Anybody listening, if you've got yeah. ties What's to the, the I Brady Bunch, I want to say, I can see the name. It's like reach Sherwood, out Sherwood. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, we we'll find out. This will seconds. be great. That's excellent because, um, yeah, that, that's excellent. But, but literally, I felt that. And I felt like I loved Alice. I didn't know I was a lesbian then, but I loved her because she was like a little butch, but she was so soft. I mean, like me, I feel like I'm masculine and butch in ways, but I'm so gentle and nurturing. So I felt like that's a great combination. And I was drawn to her Uh without question. Um, But anyway, so I think about that and I think about like, I learned how to be in relationship by watching other parents be in relationship because I never saw my mother be physical with anyone. I never saw her hug someone or kiss someone. I mean, I taught her how to hug. I was in my 20s and I was like, you know wow. what? God damn it. Come here, mom. Like, we, we need to hug each other. Well, okay, so, you and your okay. mom are. are were. She's passed. She's but passed. yeah. But we, it's like, well, while I was you growing. Redeemed, you redeemed the, the relationship kind of came out or no? I was brutal. When I was in, in middle school and high school, I made sure she knew how miserable she had made my life. And I let her know how irresponsible and neglectful she was. And then, of course, I felt horrible and guilty. And then I'd be nice to her. But I always let her know where I was going. But I was never home. I'm like, I'm staying at Kara's house. I'm staying at this house. I'm staying at my friends. And then she said, you are, this is your house. I am your mother. And then I'd be out, okay, bye-bye, mom, and hang up, you know. And she would say, and I, and I would tell her, because I get so frustrated with her, her lack of responsibility, I said, you had your opportunity to care for me and protect me, and you did not. You may not do that now that I'm 13 or 14. You missed your chance. Wow. Just plain and simple. And it was true. No, I mean, that's a So great... for her to try and advocate and navigate my life when I knew better, I know how to keep myself safe better. She, I, she, there was this one woman who I love to this day who's passed on. She was wild, sexy Linda. She had like cropped hair, Rod Stewart. She'd be, she, she had a house right across the street from our, our elementary school and she'd be out there sunbathing. She'd be... <laughs> whistling at the Harley Davidsons that go by. She was crazy out there. Beautiful. And her daughter, she was a single mother. Her daughter and I were best friends. I love this woman. I'd go to her house. She'd have biker guys over there. They'd be smoking pot. She'd tell me, you know, Angie, go get me, go get me my doobies. That's what she called the little smoke, you know, and I'd be okay. And I'd get her her roach and get her her, you know, TV guide. She always had the TV guide. And my mother hated her. Ay, esa mujer. Oy, que, oy, que odio. She was repulsed by Linda because Linda had men over. Now, I never saw Linda having sex. I never, the men that she had over there never threatened me, ever. And these were hardcore bikers, fucking smoking, right. doing whatever they did, meanwhile, all tattooed. Your, meanwhile, your mom's son. Yeah. And so the, so the irony of it, like to me and what I, what I knew to, what I grew to understand was that Linda represented, she was a sexual being. She was beautiful. She owned that. And the men that came, they came for her. You know, they were excited. But they were not predators, child molesters, yeah. you know? Meanwhile, my mother, I, I, you know, is, is yeah. like going to church every day, but she's surrounding herself with these predators. Right. And her judgment towards Linda was so harsh until she realized and that I had to tell her, Mom, I am safe here. She takes care of me. She feeds me. <clears throat> she protects me. But my mother, it just went against everything she knew. It was like, you know, the, the, the idea of the virgin and the whore? Mm. Like, that's the dichotomy? Like, my mother grew up in that world of Catholicism and, and good and evil and, and, and sex is bad. And, you know, but Really? I'd say, Mom, how did you have five children? Oh, wait, the God, he gave to me the children's. I'm like, really? Hmm, interesting, because I didn't know that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Ah, Angelica. Like, she just, you know, every time I challenged her, she, you know, and, and towards the end, were you, were you 
asked, when did I start to have compassion for her? I did grow to have compassion, but it was only after I got to be angry and really say, and grieve, like, fuck, I lost this part of my life because I was taking care of you, mom, because I was worried about you, mom, because you put me in that position to be your fucking advocate. I was too young. Like I'd chase down the bus because she couldn't run as fast, right? right? I'd carry the groceries. I'd negotiate the food stamps and whatever. Someone didn't understand something. I mean, oh, my mom says, I was her translator, yeah. you know? I played all these roles for her. And the role that I didn't get to play was innocent child, like fucking playful and free. Right. You know? It's interesting. I'm just thinking of, as you're saying, all that, that you had to do and all that you endured, and then you look at, you know, you're living in this beautiful house in this beautiful neighborhood and, you know, somehow you uh, you figured it out. Mm-hmm. And again, that mm-hmm. gift of failure and in, um, in some ways it's like you were given the gift of failure over and over again. And you and what you did was you took it and yeah. and, it's like and you used it. You reaped the somehow. But, we, here, but here's the thing. I think that this is still, you know, I struggle with this. Trust me. I, I'm going, I'm meditating. I'm reading. I'm trying to be Zen. I'm doing, you know, I just started doing a Theta. <laughs> Theta healing. Watch oh, oh, out, oh, brothers and uh, sisters. My life's about to change. With uh, Amy yes, Budden. Yes, So That's I'm starting a, another to another one of uh, my interviews. Amy Budden, train your brain. Yeah, and, train my and brain. And you're also going to meet with Tony Torres. Yeah, another interview today. Exactly. Uh, that's that's kind of things are happening. Thing. The that's fact that of, we're sitting here. Yeah, it's really, uh, that's cool. So anyway. Yeah. So, so anyway, so 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 what I realized, uh, so training my brain, is that I really, I mean, I remember the first time I met my wife. Uh, she lived uh, in Brentwood in a big, beautiful house. I had dropped her off there after like a class thing. She was our class, uh, like uh, volunteer coordinator when I taught at Crossroads. That's how I met her. Her daughter was in my class. And I remember driving up her driveway and I had never ever driven up, you know, under a canopy of trees in one of these private gates. And then you arrive at this huge mansion and I didn't know what the fuck to do. I felt like, like I couldn't be friends with her. I couldn't like, oh my God, we're so different. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, when we, when we started to have feelings for each other, it's like, like I can never, ever give you this ever yeah and i said you know i i I live in a studio apartment uh i eat beans and rice i eat falafel for dinner like like there's no like cut restaurant like i remember having to tell her at one point uh and this was when we were friends and we were meeting each other i felt like i was coming out to her but listen to what i was coming out to her for so we meet for coffee because we were talking, I was doing an art project. She was so interested in it, and and we be, had become friends through, through school. And and I was telling her about this art project, so we'd meet for coffee. Hey, you want to have coffee? Sure. Well, you know what? Before I met her, I was drinking coffee. Not lattes, not chai tea this, not latte with a twist of that, okay? And then I started drinking lattes. And then it started to become really uncomfortable for me because I felt like, well, I don't usually buy myself a latte you know, I usually, you know, and yeah. now I'm offering to buy her one. And, and I started to feel this pressure of, oh, my God, I don't have the money to even buy her a fucking cup of coffee. Right. Like, so I had to come out to her like, hey, you know, remember when we went to lunch that time? Like, I really can't do that. I, I work yeah. as a teacher and I have these student loans and I have to pay my rent. And like, I can't do this. And I was crying She's wondering, what the fuck is wrong with you? I was crying because I felt like I had to come out to her that I was poor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it was more painful to me than coming out that I'm a rape survivor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the, the stigma the and I think of the it, shame yeah. of it, mm. it was so crippling in my life that I, it, yeah. it was hard. Yeah. And then she's like, that's, that's okay. So, so this house, this is, I, I couldn't have imagined this. I didn't know that I'd someday be living in a beautiful safe. And that's what this has given me. And of all the things is safety. The, just basic. Mm-hmm. I don't look over my back. I'm not preoccupied with who's where. I'm not scared. And I think that's the biggest gift that I've gotten from my relationship with Tracy is really feeling safe. Yeah. 
It's, That's it, beautiful. That's, I mean, it's powerful. and you give her something, you know, maybe you're not giving her uh, money, mm-hmm. but you're giving her something else. That's that, you know, and that's the way, that's the way it works. It's a reciprocal um, relationship. L- let me ask you, you, you said before when you were watching, um, you're talking about coming out, you, you're talking about watching the Brady Bunch and Alice <laughs> and you said, Alice. I didn't know I was a lesbian. At, w- at what point... Did oh my you, goodness! Because what? How old were you when watching the Brady Bunch? I mean, so uh, when I was watching the Brady, it was like 77, 78, 79. That's when I lived in Chicago, uh, and when you know, I just was attracted to her. And then we'd take the bus. My mother never drove, so we always waited for the bus. And you know, once in a while, you'd see like an old dykey lady come up with like short hair, gray hair, and like Levi's, and I was like, like just fascinated, like wow. <laughs> That's a girl, you know, like, wow. Yeah. And I'd be like staring at her, but, but never really thought about it. And then um, when I was like 14 years old, I had a, a friend who, who was gay and, uh, and there was a, a girl who came over and, you know, people would say, you're so butch. And I was so offended. I'm like, fuck you. I'm ready to kill him, right? Yeah, exactly. So that was my response. Um, (laughs) But anyway, and I I just was offended because I didn't realize, you know, because I grew up like gay and lesbian is bad, as malo, Dios te va a castigar, you're going to be punished by God. Like, I knew that. That was a given. So when people would call me butch, I was offended. And then one day this girl told my friend David, like, hey, you know, what's her story? It's like, oh, no, no, she's not gay. And then, oh, you sure? <laughs> no, she's not gay. And then she could have her number. And then so we call, she called me. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, cool. That's cool. I'll go with you. And we went to the beach. I remember, like, she had a car. I did not. I was 14. She was 18. And we drove to Playa del Rey. And we're, like, walking. And I was, like, into punk rock. So I had, like, skull earrings. Like, you know, I was a hardcore Doc Martens, ripped jeans, and thought I was, like, the coolest cat in the world. And then we're walking. And then she turned around and kissed me. And I was like, what the fuck? And I just remember, just like everything was like, wow. And what? What like a it concept. All, it all made sense. Oh my God. All of a sudden, everything. Yes. I was like, wow. That's... wow. The, the, the one thing that I felt was like, wow, that's incredible. And what I felt, and this is, you know, maybe it's my trauma, but I felt so empowered. I was not scared of what was going to happen next where I felt equal and I felt reciprocal, like a reciprocal thing. Like nothing's going to happen that I don't want to happen. I really, really mm. found peace with that. And, you know, people say, are you a lesbian because of everything that happened to you? Like, no wonder you're a lesbian. I'm like, I don't know how to, how to tie that in. Yeah. I, I really don't. I know, I know that there's a biological aspect. I believe that I was born with extra androgen. Like, you know, that, 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 that could be it. But the truth is, I really felt that sense of peace. Like, if I were to hold your hand, I'd feel awkward. I'd feel like, oh my God, everyone's looking at us. If I were to kiss you, I'd be like, oh, like, I don't want to take over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, I just, I don't know how to be a heterosexual woman. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Have I had sex with men? Yes. Was it fun? Yes, as long as I'm in charge. No, <laughs> but you know, yes. I'm definitely have to be explicit on the rating. <laughs> yeah, on this, there you on go. This yes, 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 explicit. But but seriously, and and I just felt so just connected, and it, it really was just like wow, and things, and so I didn't struggle. You know, people talk about coming out. Like I'm so grateful. I had no shame. I had no anything. It's like when I came out okay. to like the, my friend's parents. I'm like, I need to talk to you. They're like, what, honey? I'm a lesbian. Oh, honey, we knew that. Stop it. I thought you were going to tell us. Well, that's so funny. It sounds like you, you know, because I've I've spoken to people who have said that, you know, when they were, they knew they were gay when they were in, you know, I don't know, 10 years old or whatever. And that, and it sounds like you almost, you were the last one to know it. Yes, exactly. Which is, which is interesting. Yeah. And then I wonder if that maybe has to do with some of the trauma that you just put 
any feelings of any sexuality gone away. Yeah. So you Absolutely. were almost numb to it until Absolutely. this thing happened. Maybe yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, that's yeah. interesting. <clears throat> it's very interesting, actually. I th- I'll th- you know, that's a really good thing to think about because I can think about relationships, and of course, I'm, I, I was attracted to men, and I'm still attracted to men. I just would feel awkward holding your hand down the street because yeah. I'm like, uh oh, people are looking. Like I really feel uncomfortable with that part. But that moment, there was a freeing. Huh. thing and and I was 14 you know and I had you know after that I had lots of relationships but uh so like you dating never, stuff. you never had the you never had that thing with that like the coming out was was uh, a hard no so uh, natural and, and luckily I had friends and who that were was gay. really early and also 84. That, like, I mean when I when I think back to this um you know we had this conversation with uh, a gay couple that we know a couple of weeks ago and I said, I, I don't, you know, the statistics mm-hmm. will show that it's, what, what, what is it, 10%? 10% of the world population. I right? mean, I kind of, I, maybe I'm just forgetting this, but I don't even really think I, I, I was so sheltered. I don't think I really even knew the concept until yeah. pretty far along. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I even. I mean, I, I, feel I like just I knew really negative. I think I knew negative stereotypes yeah. about gays and lesbians. Yeah, and uh, I definitely didn't know. You know, it wasn't normalized. I mean, I feel today like my biggest fear of being a parent in the in the Palisades, Pacific Palisades, is I thought, oh my God, like what are they going to do to our kids? Like are people going to challenge them? And that was my biggest fear. And what I am so grateful to say is that no one has ever shamed my kids. No one has ever challenged my kids. Like, yeah. dude, you have two moms. Yeah. I mean, even in preschool, kids would say to their parents. That's no fair. Matias has two moms. Yeah. Like they, like like it's an injustice, yeah. you know? And uh or they'd say, "Oh, where's your dad?" And then, "Oh, I don't have a dad. I have two moms." You know? Yeah. And and it wasn't until literally 2 weeks ago that they started becoming more curious cuz they're both from the same donor. I carried both kids. Okay. I um, was very excited. I knew from a kid as a child that I was going to be a parent. I just didn't know when and how, and all the details. But um, I, we picked out a donor. I've had the photograph of this donor on my desk since before they were born, right? In utero. Like, oh, I got a picture from the donor from the, you know, the, the cryobank. Yay, let's yeah. look, that's him. That's, you know, love this man. If I ever had the opportunity to meet him, I would embrace him and thank him greatly for what he has contributed to our family because I, I feel blessed, you know? Yeah. And uh, anyway, so they asked some question the other day. We had a, a, a little friend in the car with him. They're like, well, what does he look like? And I'm like, you haven't seen the photograph? You know that photograph? That- no. I'm like, I'll show you. And really? sure enough, they're like, I thought that was Matias. And then Matias says, I-, I thought that was me. I'm like, isn't that amazing? And then they kind of got more curious. Like, oh my God. And you could have seen in his face... Like this feeling of, wow, yeah, I look like him. Yeah, that's powerful. It's it's great, and and it's also you know in this day and age there there's 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 two moms, there's two dads. You know, at least out here, families you, you know, you, you are different. All, we we have um, you know we know people with adopted kids. There, there's kind of the it runs the gamut, and your kids at a certain point start to go, oh, like they'll. But it is like that. It's a very innocent. They just one day realize, like, huh, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll ask, and then you know, you kind of. Well, the best thing is because, of course, like my mother, you know, it, it's almost like there are so many parallels between my mother and I. But what I tried to do is really try and do it differently because my, of course, like I think about it, it's like, oh no, like. I'm having two children and I'm not, you know, a heterosexual woman and, you know, there's no father and I don't have a father for them. But the truth is, whatever it is that we're doing is I try to be honest and say, you know, we really wanted a family and this is the only way we can do it aside from yeah. adopting, you know, and, and answering their questions, not giving them the details of everything. Right. Answer their question. If they're six years old and they want to know where babies come from, you tell them, you know, they, they eat their mommy's bellies and there's a seat. You know, like, give it to them in their language and be right. like, well, intercourse, children, happens or not. You know, whatever. Yeah. And I just said, oh, our doctor helped us. And, you know, we go to the doctor and we da-da-da. And then you wait and, you know, all this, ex- you know, like the excitement around it. Um, and I just think it's important where my mother really literally told me she was she had had a stroke. She was in the hospital. This is before, like 10 years before she died. She told me, go to Jirap 
and they come back for the baby. So she wanted me to go to Europe, be pre- get pregnant out there, you know, and then tell this fucking fantabulous story about that French man and then come have my child here. And I looked at her, I'm like, no, no yeah. I'm not going away yeah. and coming back pregnant. You know, but that's how she did it. Yeah. You know, she just, yeah. oh, fifth child, here we are. You know, yeah. and I just, and it's it's laughable, but it's just so sad because that was the reality then, you know, for, for, for women, you know, to have children out of wedlock was a sin. It was, it was looked down upon. It yeah. was, you know, yeah. so I done had me two kids <laughs> out of wedlock. Well, let me, let me ask you, cause we, we will, uh. Wind it down. And this is a question uh, inspired by my wife, Deirdre, who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, it's funny because she's just, I used to listen to podcasts and she wasn't listening at all. And then all of a sudden she started listening recently while she runs. And now she's coming back like, you got to hear this. You got to hear nice. this. You got to hear this. And she just said to me today, she goes, you know, you should ask. And I, I had thought this and kind of threw it away. And she, uh, I thought it was a great suggestion she had. She said, why don't you ask your guests, you know, what they would say, if they could say something to their younger self Ugh. right now, yeah. what what would that be? So- <clears throat> That's a great one. Um, what I would say to my younger self um, is I would say, don't compromise yourself. I felt so compelled to be perfect, for you to like me, for, for me to be worthy. So I was overly attentive like codependent, like, like I'll do everything for you. Like I'm going to put your underwear in six by six square inches. I will do your laundry. I'll feed your fucking cats. I'll do whatever. And I just, I just did all that because I wanted to be like uh, irreplaceable because I didn't want to just be discarded. So I figured if I gave you all this, that I could stay. That was a horrible fucking feeling because that meant that I didn't have standards of what was okay and what was not okay for me, right? So I let them have the power and them decide, as opposed to saying, you know, this isn't working for me. I need... Well, that's a great answer. So I wouldn't compromise myself. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, Well, thank you for sitting down with me and giving me all the wisdom. And, um, And before we go... Where can people find you? I know we mentioned it, but just say it again. Okay, so you can find my website at two moms, the number two moms, two kids.com. I also am a photographer, which you mentioned, and uh, I don't have my own website for the photography, but I am on 500px, 500px, uh, backslash Maize, M A I Z E U C L A. And I have lots of images of portraits I've taken from Native Americans at powwows to my children to to my to I don't know if I have yeah, no I, I I, yeah. have, oh you have had the picture big, yes well, yeah, have, but I try not to use yeah, other uh, other people's children without their permission no so, no no yeah, but yeah, we yeah. have the big version yeah, of Donovan boxing oh I love the, it that you took which I is love, great, love which love hung it. in the local uh, restaurant restaurant here I have yeah. another show in March actually so I'm gonna do another another gig where's that in L A here at Cafe Vita Cafe Vita if anybody else you know if it has has a space um I'll show my work I love to okay cool thank you cool well thank you doctor thank you sir <laughs> thank you sir. and now when i see you i'm gonna say doctor yeah thank you i like that it sounds good i mean <laughs> i was gonna force my children to say that but that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> didn't work all right well thank you very much thank you Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.